0: now. Okay, uh, very pleased this evening to have with me Italo Brandimati to discuss his article Breathless War, Martial Bodies, Aerial Experiences and the Atmosphere of Empire. Um, Italo is a PhD candidate in Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. His research is broadly concerned with the relations between the techno-scientific and the bodily dimensions of war and security particularly with reference to racial and colonial violence in his current project provisionally entitled the technology of empire war experience and the embodied production of the international italo develops a theory of war experiences that take seriously the role of technology in the imperial history of world politics some of the findings from his research have been published in the European Journal of International Relations. His previous work on the politics of measurement in global counter-terrorist surveillance has appeared in international political sociology. And as we was saying, I'm very very honoured to have uh, Italo here this evening. I've prepared a few questions. Um, is there anything you. you'd like to add yeah. before I get into those questions, uh, Italo? Absolutely. Um, great. So... As ever on um, the Hypervelocity podcast, we like to focus on the empirical, you know, fascinating article that you wrote about the Abyssinian um, War, um, you know, something that is quite quite, uh, original there. Um, So my first question is, um, why do you think that the usual discussions of aerial warfare tend to split between the strategic, technical, and the ontological plane on the one hand? And the intimate embodied and phenomenological on the other and how does your use of concepts such as the envelope the weather and warfare beyond the human in your analysis overcome this split
1: thank you so first first of all thank you very much james for, for having me today here um i'm very grateful for, for your invitation and th- this seems like Oh, an amazing platform to have these kinds of discussions, so thank you. Um, When it comes to your question, to begin with, I want to say that when I talk about the usual discussions on aerial warfare, I think about the broader um, terms of the conversations around um, contemporary imaginaries of aerial warfare, not only in the military, but also in, in policy, in academia, and in the general public in general. So with this in mind, um, I think we can broadly agree perhaps that one of the most widely available um, dimensions in the discussions and broader imagery of aerial warfare today is that of, of drone warfare. And um, drones have, for some reasons, some of them are valid, some of them maybe. More dictated by some kind of technology hype, they have captivated um, the the public, the military, and 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 scholarly attention in a way that is perhaps not really representative of how um, war is conducted today, on average. Mm-hmm. But uh, in my opinion, is certainly politically relevant. So why do we think so much about drones? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I when I talk about this distinction between the technical or ontological Plane and the intimate or phenomenological one. I, what I mean is that th- these discussions are tainted by familiar distinctions between um, humans and technology in war. So, um, uh, what I what I want to emphasize here is that our way of thinking about technology in warfare and in the aerial warfare in, in particular here is. Um, is a logic is embedded in a logic that already distinguishes between the human and the technological in ways that are not necessarily meant to connect the two, but also to um, tell them apart, to distinguish them and and um, um, contrast them. So, for instance, when we think about drone warfare, there's been around a lot of discussions around the the importance of. Um, remote warfare and being able to wage war remotely, um, which is broadly informed by the idea that distance is something that protects soldiers. And then there's, um, there's a new paradigm of liberal war that's come around when uh, when technologies like drones come in, where the social contract is is still implemented in having your soldiers not having to go to war on the battlefield. So whereas the social contract would generally see the state as protecting the citizen, and um, uh, but the citizen protecting the state when the state is in danger, in this case, the citizen and the soldier is never really under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the main danger of drone warfare, the main danger of like technological warfare is the a threat that it may take agency away from the human. So what do we do when we don't know what, um, um, to what extent humans have decision-making powers on the battlefield? What do we do when a, um, a lot of what happens on the battlefield is being automated and is being carried out at a distance? Who has responsibility for what happens on the battlefield? So um, in, in these discussions, I think that aerial warfare is often more about strategy mm-hmm. and more about ways of asserting dominance and control. So when I when I see when I say that there's an emphasis on the ontological and technical dimension, what I mean is that human experiences of warfare, so what um um those who wage or those who witness war experience um, 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 on the battlefield or from the comfort of the the stations, the bodily and emotional reactions to war, is something that is not just neglected, but also irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what the human experience of warfare is as long as we understand the broader logics of drone warfare so the drone for instance forces particular relations of power and uh, institutes particular forms of violence and humans can't really do much about it so there is an equation here between um controlling like having having political power and controlling air so um this is a very deterministic way of looking at drone warfare where uh, what matters is the kind of grand political and strategic ways in which um, the technology simply structures um, um, social and political orders mm-hmm. and in, in, in ways that are obviously violent and in ways that are that are in some sense predetermined and, pre- and already decided. So on, on the one hand, we have that. But on the other hand, we have uh, especially critical work, which is focused on precisely the lived experiences of drone warfare, which means both the experience of the pilots, um, uh, piloting the drones, but also the experiences of um, people witnessing uh, um, and being on the receiving end of drone warfare. So, um, this is an, an extent. Uh, this is a this is an attempt to humanize drone warfare and understand what's at stake politically in this. So, in the in these cases, the questions around this way of waging war are not are not questions of security, are not questions of governance, or are not traditional questions of security. They're not questions of governance, but they are um, intimate. And personal. Yeah. They're not about ground strategy. They're about mm-hmm. uh, people's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. the The problem for me here is mm-hmm. that um, these discussions assume that the idea that the, the the strategic and the intimate are two domains that are obviously separate. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is to me problematic, and it it faces a number of um, Contemporary, but also historical ways through which air warfare was waged and is waged today. And so I looked at the Abyssinian War precisely because um, it's, it's a case that shows very clearly how the strategic dimension of air warfare, so the ways in which this war in particular was essential to structuring um, uh, international order back then, uh, is inseparable from the experiential one. So, for for the fascists, and we'll we can discuss this uh, later on. The um the ways aerial warfare was experienced by the in by by individual soldiers as well as as well as the um, the uh, colonized Ethiopians was fundamentally. Critical to the political effects, the global political effects of uh, aero warfare. So this is this is the, just to clarify the terms of the conversation when I'm when I'm when I'm uh, uh, talking about this. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you as you said, I use um, uh, a particular set of kind of, of conceptual tools to um, um, articulate what I mean by this and how how we can uh, overcome this distinction. And, and these are mainly the ideas of envelopment and the weather and th- these are two concepts that I take respectively from a uh, geographer Derek McCormack and his work atmospheric things and uh, Christina sharps uh, book in the wake on blackness and being so envelopment in this sense to give like brief... Brief, a brief sense of what these mean. Envelopment is the condition of being immersed within an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, um, as, I, as I paraphrase McCormack, the process through which um, ways of being political, but also ways of being a body or a thing, and what a body can do, are shaped in relation to um, the, the element of air. The weather, instead, in uh, in Christina Sharpe's terms, um, is, and I quote, "the totality of our environments." And in the in in the context of her work, in particular, this is an environment where anti-blackness is pervasive. When I when I uh, look at these concepts, I think it is important to to articulate political life in relation to the the experience of being immersed in an atmosphere and being you know um not just grounded beings but also aerial beings mm. because social and political lives are and not only like biological life is immersed in an atmosphere and when when i, when I mean atmosphere when i say atmosphere here i mean simultaneously the material and the the sensorial, the emotional dimensions of of being in a context, of being immersed in a particular historical and political structure. So it's about um, air as an element, but it's also about uh, atmosphere as a mood. So in the case of uh, the Abyssinian War, for instance, uh, this awareness I think is uh, crucial to overcome the distinctions between the technical. and uh, and the embodied in aerial warfare. And and I think this sets up um, interesting ways of thinking about aerial warfare in ways that are, that that are foregrounding the connection between the human and technology, rather than being um, wary of that distinction, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: No, that that's really really great framing there, Italo. And um, I think what I took from your your piece was the way in which the the, the gas literally um, envelops the the person in this terrible way, in which they breathe it in and it's so terrible and damaging. But also how that is um, obviously in a really material sense. The weapon of war that's being waged in an imperialistic sense against sort of the, the colonised group. Um, it's the weapon of war and it's the it, it's the air that people are literally breathing.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's, I think there's, there's a number of ways this has to, um, this structures one's analysis as well when we do like, you know, both Historical contemporary work on on aerial warfare, and you know when I when I uh, looked at it myself, these concepts were essential to articulate these tensions because the the available discourses were not as uh, uh, as useful in understanding the relations. So, well, to to uh, give you some examples, for instance, when like the the aerial dimension of warfare in the, in the, in in the Abyssinian War is already understood as being essentially political. So like this is this is a history that goes back. If we want to you know think about the historical side of, of these connections, this is a history that goes back to at least World War One. And allegedly, even earlier, with the the uh, first aerial offensive by Italy in in Libya in 1911. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a very important book by uh, Peter Sloterdijk called uh, Terror from the Air, which is a key work in this respect, where he um, thinks about World War One as the moment where a new mode of violence comes about, which is um, violence that is exerted not directly onto the enemy, mm-hmm. but... Violence that is aimed at the uh, immediate environment mm-hmm. in which the enemy is situated. Um, so the ele- an element that is usually taken uh, for granted in human life, which is you know uh, that we breathe, that we are like we live in an atmosphere, is made explicit and significant and weaponized. Mm-hmm. So again, you know the relation between the ontological and phenomenological here is exactly. Um, inherent in the fact that there is a moment where, historically, where uh, air become, becomes understood, not as just of biological importance, but also of uh, strategic and cultural importance. Okay. Yeah, of course.
0: Um, um, with the invention of those technologies. And as you've hinted um, there, the Libyan War and the Abyssinian War, which you cover in your... Um, article um, why, why was it uh, do you think that Imperial Italy had come to frame its desire for Imperial dominance so strongly through the frame of the weaponization of the air in the Abyssinian war
1: yeah, yeah. thank you so um, this is um, this is interestingly I think a crucial it, it, it is interestingly crucial to understand what the histories again of the of aerial warfare um uh, are, if we want to situate the Abyssinian War in particular in a global in a in a global history in a, like in, in an imperial history of global politics. Um think I think about especially the ways in which um the fascist and colonial the the, the colonial project of fascist Italy was already intellectually heavily indebted mm-hmm. to Particularly, traditions like the traditional modernism or futurism. <coughs> Sorry. And these are traditions that notably venerated the, the machine and the airplane in particular as a, as a tool of individual and collective transformation, mm-hmm. which would have actualized the, the imperial dominance of, of the Italian race. Uh, for instance, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, who's the the founding father of Italian Futurism, saw aviation as the the agent of a civilizational transformation, and Mussolini himself saw aviators as an example to be followed and a and the the embodiment of a new race of uh, of, of Italian citizens. So for him, all Italians should uh, envy them, and, uh, um, and 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 be particularly proud of Italian wings. So this is the the, the national context in which we are moving when the Abyssinian uh, when when the Abyssinian uh, war takes takes place. Um, so in, in this moment, if we think about it, it is hard not to see how the emergence of Italians as uh, political subjects, so as imperial political subjects especially, was tied to a condition of envelopment. So the idea of being in the air had a particular um, um, political connotation that was a connotation of um, um, national pride, but at the same time, uh, imperial superiority. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, as as I've shown in my work, um, some Italians, including uh, Giulio Duhay, for instance, who's uh, um, world-renowned for being a, a, a visionary theorist of air warfare, was also pushing, like, praising the, the importance of the the air weapon. And he was teaching aviators even soon after the war in Libya, talking very seriously about the relationship between soldiers and airplanes. So as they were, you know, fused together, as they were a single a single body. So um, this being said, this was, in a sense, the, the, the national context in which we, we're moving. There's also, beyond Italy, a broader context that justifies why... Imperial like the, the idea of of aerial warfare was so crucial to Imperial Italy, which is that already beyond the Italian context, we were witnessing the emergence of a narrative about dreams of superior aerial soldiers. And and these these ideas fed into broader imaginaries that existed even before World War One. And these imaginaries were again radicated in the idea that the martial mastery of the air was a tool to achieve um, supremacy in Europe, but also beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in um, in Britain, for instance, uh, H. G. Wells, uh, uh, J. F. C. Fuller uh, were some of the uh, the uh, outmost proponents mm-hmm. of. Um, of ideas of conquest in the air right, achieved through the use of airplanes, the use of gas as elements that were essential and, and essential to future warfare, mm-hmm. and these were always deeply tied, both you know in, the, in in Italy, but also in Britain, in France, in Germany, to nationalist ideas of modernity and civilization, support for aerochemical war in general, which often also resisted. Pacific, pacifist uh, uh, mm, criticism um, and translating into the adulation of fascism and and uh, the um, the praise of imperial ambition so even and even after the Great War which was uh, particularly horrific as far as aerial warfare goes um, British and French forces were still, we're still seeing uh, bomb, gas bombing especially as, you know, suitable, suitable um, and, and fair tools of pacification, of colonial pacification. Um, I have uh, taken a quote from uh, Winston Churchill, for instance, which is, I think, very, very um, um, high, highlighting and, and, and important in this sense. Uh, were well, in 1919, um, after the horrors of World War I and after the, the widespread condemnation of the use of gas, uh, he would say, I do not understand this squeamishness about the use of gas. I am strongly in favour of using poison gas against uncivilised tribes. The moral effect should be so good that the loss of life should be reduced to a minimum. It is not necessary to use only the most deadly gases. Gases can be used, which cause great inconvenience and will spread a lively terror and yet would leave no serious permanent effects on most of those affected. And this, I think, um, feeds into broader narratives of aerial warfare and especially the use of chemical gas as some kind of civilized and uh, and, um, morally higher form of warfare, which would um, be so terrifying that would um, shorten the duration of any other conflict, and at the same time, the writings of air-minded theorists in Italy also reflected European awareness and fears of the destructive power of of, of uh, aerial war. In this sense, so the when we think about the German the, the German development of um, an airship fleet in um, in World War One, and the, the increasing anxiety and vulnerability to aerial attacks, especially in Britain, uh, the prospects of German gas bombings in France as well. These were all elements that fueled a broader European sense of anxiety and anticipation about air war, uh, which prompted discussions of evacuation plans, uh, the constructions of shelters, distribution of gas masks. And, and so on. Um, these were also these were all plans that were directly inspired sometimes by theorists like Julia Duhay um, and were also aimed at allaying civilian fears and making, making civilians more familiar with, with aerial danger. Um, and this is also something the fascist, the fascist regime, the regime did. Um, by simulating gas bombings, for instance, uh, conducting a number of uh, drills, which were which were widely covered in in Italian newspapers uh, back in the day. So what I'm trying to say is, there's a there's a broader um, European context in which the decision to wield the aerial the aerial weapon against mm-hmm. Ethiopia make is, is situated and in which this particular decision makes po- makes great sense politically. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we also need to remember that um, there's there's previous history between Italy and Ethiopia, and um, in the in the late uh, 1800s, mm-hmm. in the first Italo-Ethiopian War, the Ethiopians had wielded a crushing victory against the Italians at Adua. So it was it was fundamental to the fascist regime to reassert their dominance as an imperial power that was at least at the same level, if not superior, to other imperial powers in Europe. And and this was a narrative that uh, in that moment specifically was necessarily articulated through a reference to race. So, for instance, when the um, Ethiopians won against the Italians in the first Italy-Ethiopian War, the um, um, the Ethiopians started understanding themselves as uh, Caucasian, and um, which also. Distanced them from the broader uh, Pan Pan-African, Africanist movement, especially in in the United States, that um, glorified Ethiopian the the, the uh, Ethiopian emperor as um, a symbol of black liberation. So the um, um, the the outcome of that war showed us how warfare can reorder. Racial categories, and the Ethiopians being victorious against the European power made them a symbol of black liberation, but also made them understand themselves allegedly as more as, as um, more civilized and superior to um, the broader uh, the broader black libera- liberation movement um, that, that supported them and glorified them. So the, this it was important to reverse this tendency and to reassert the the whiteness and the superiority racial superiority of Italy and the blackness and the inferiority of Ethiopians. And for this reason, the, uh, the, the gas bombings in particular were uh, became a, a an obvious uh, obvious choice to. Uh, um, achieve crushing defeat. There is some there is some debate on on whether the use of uh, gas and airplanes was absolutely strategically essential and uh, essential to Italian victory, and whether or not Italians would have won anyway. But uh, I don't think that's the point. I think that the point is understanding these intellectual and uh, historical lineages that gave importance to the, the choice of pursuing air and warfare.
0: Uh, thank you very much. And um, earlier on in, in your answer just then, Italo, you, you mentioned uh, these imaginaries, and it, it reminded me of, you, you mentioned H.G. Wells there, who was a very good friend of Churchill, and that was really interesting to hear that whole Churchill quote in full. But um, he kind of, H.G. Wells kind of informed churchill's thinking on nuclear weapons as far back as when radium was first discovered which eventually led to you know the development of the british nuclear bomb but i suppose the point with with the imaginaries is you mentioned the the futurist imaginaries there so my next question would be and contrasting with things you've, you've mentioned about drone warfare earlier um if the futurist conception of aerial warfare resisted the full fusion of the human subject and machine in the, quote, dissolution of the body as a locus of elemental sensing, end quote. What's the difference... What is what is different about modern drone warfare in which this fusing of man and machine seems to be the goal?
1: Thank you very much. Well, I think the... Um, the idea the idea of understanding the relation between the body the human body and the machine and the extent to which we can meaningfully distinguish between them is in a certain way running through throughout the the history of technology in in warfare and, and as you as you uh, highlighted is still very valid today, in a sense. So, um, to me, what is more important when we think about what this relation means is the idea that, for the futurist, the point of having a dissolution and, a comp- and, and, and an entanglement between the human body and the machine was always eventually aimed at clarifying and reproducing the primacy of the human. And um, and this is fundamental, I think, when we think about how we discuss drone warfare today. Um, first of all, Because when we think about drone warfare, it always, uh, often seems like the drone is an extension of the human body. So uh, the drone uh, appears to be some kind of prosthesis that extends the vision of human eyes. Mm. but also extend, but, but it also extends to the masculinity of human soldiers um, making, making it possible to exert violence in a way that was previously not possible and allegedly morally superior as well. The idea of precise bombings and precise um, attacks and remote warfare but it's also, as we were discussing, an extension of uh, human emotion. And when we think about um, all those studies that that focused on the the ways in which drone pilots have very similar rates of PTSD, for instance, than soldiers who. Are actually deployed on the battlefield. That tells us a lot about whether or not the distance, the, the physical distance that um, the, the technology enables, also traduce, uh, also translates into emotional distance. Let's let, let's put it that way. Um, however, I think that um, in this sense, when we're thinking about the distinctions between different different. Um, ways of framing the human technology relation. I think that discussions of agency become really important here, um, especially when we we think about drone warfare. And this is because although we might see the drone as an extension of the human body, there's always a sense that we need to fight for keeping the human in the loop whatever that means. And and, and and obviously that's articulated in a number of ways, which I'm, I'm not going to go into right now. So sometimes what might be the extension of the human is understood, is instead understood as a threatening substitution of the human. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and and. Uh, this is this is one of the ways in which we might think um, about whether or not it is the goal of, of drone warfare to um, um, fuse together the human and the machine or not. Mm-hmm. So, depending on how how we frame these discussions, we have different um, different uh, ways of framing of, of understanding the problem. Mm-hmm. And um, although although I think that. Even understandings of, of drones are, 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 as you know substituting the human and taking human agency away are not accurate and and um, um maybe misguided in some sense. Mm-hmm. I I also think this is how we hear people talking about this. So this is this is what these are the the the, the terms that dominate again the border imaginary of this. So. If we think about it this way, we might say that drone warfare, the the narrative of drone warfare and the narrative and the futurist narrative of aerial warfare are not necessarily in contrast. Mm. Um, This is, if we accept, the the assumption that the human and human agency and human decision-making are in danger today. So to what extent is drone warfare... Is, is the project drone warfare about bringing together the human and the machine? If there is such a strong anxiety about keeping the human in the, in the middle, the human in the in the loop, and, and giving primacy to the human, so there is some sense in you know in some in in some broad broad ways, some resonance between these. Um, uh, discourses, mm-hmm. um, and when it comes to think to thinking about uh, the similarities between these ideas, again, um, it is important to see how these conceptions always produce problematic exclusions, mm-hmm. especially regarding ideas of race, racism, and racialization. In my view. The, the exaltation of the figure of the human, or maybe sometimes of a superhuman, you know, or of a technologically augmented human, which is, again, meant to glorify the human, it is almost necessarily, it almost necessarily entails a process of dehumanization, on the other hand. So... When, when when we think about the the connotation this takes we also we should also think about the ways these modes of violence acquire moral significance and again if you, if we think about precision strikes as a symbol of civilized power you know the the illusion that uh, we can really have clean, perfect warfares where where collateral damage is reduced to a minimum versus, on the other hand, the idea that, like, low-tech forms of violence or, I don't know, um, uh, improvised explosive devices are something that belongs to terrorist groups, to... Barbaric actors in in warfare, which are usually pretty conveniently located outside the West. Mm-hmm. This is to me very, a very unoriginal. If we think about the ways aerial warfare back then and the use of gas, as we said, was framed as being something that um, um, was aboard within the within the borders of Europe, but absolutely acceptable, and even in some senses, are uh, noble uh, when deployed on the colonial battlefield.
0: Um, and, and that, as you mentioned there, that kind of hierarchy between, um, you know, deploying in the battlefield outside Europe, but then... Um, a differentiation between deploying gas within Europe I think what one of the most chilling aspects of, you know, to dip into the historical, um, for the next question, one of the most uh, chilling aspects of um, your paper was to learn about what was that relationship between Mussolini's use of gas in Ethiopia and the use of gas chambers by the Nazis
1: Yeah Absolutely, this is um, um, simultaneously, I think, fascinating, intellectually, but also, but also chilling and, and disturbing in in many other ways. There are different ways in which this these these um, discourses come together, and obviously, we might say we might we might see them as. Very different and very and very uh, isolated cases that have little to no connection, except perhaps uh, in a broader in, in a broader um, in a broader theoretical sense. But I think there's at least a couple of connections there that is worth highlighting when we think about the continuities between the colonial. the the colonial histories of international politics, as well as the more recent European history of, um, um, of, of of world politics, which is often understood, especially when we think about the world wars as something that is contained, um, uh, historically, politically, strategically within the boundaries of Europe. um, and one, one of the connections here is the historical connection. Nazi Germany was explicitly looking at the fascist way of articulating military strategy when it came to ways of conducting warfare and establishing political supremacy and imperial suple- supremacy. So for instance, a vast number of reports from uh, Italian generals were always quickly translated into German and were widely read in Germany. And, um, and Germans especially looked up at um, it, the Italians for the ways in which they structured plans for deportation uh, for, for the natives in, in their colonies. Most importantly, the Abyssinian War itself became um, a remarkable source of inspiration for the Nazi regime. Uh, there's, there's in particular one notable German military historian who who deeply praised the use of poison gas by the Italians as a tool to um, enact a campaign of um, a war of annihilation, and I quote, of the enemy. So the um, ideas about gassing the enemy and ideas about deportation of the natives were all were almost directly inspired by um fascist imperial strategy the other way in which the, the these two uh, these two moments are connected is more more political and more conceptual um, as we've seen, for instance, in the work of uh, M.S. Césaire, for instance, and in his discourse on colonialism, um, Césaire talks very, very clearly about how exerting colonial violence is something that dehumanizes the other, is dehumanizing, but also dehumanizes those who employ it and those who carry it out. And this this feeds into his broader notion of the colonial boomerang. So the the idea that while Europe uh, seemed surprised at Nazism, as if it's something that um, it could not be could not be uh, imagined and something that cannot be easily explained, and maybe you know a, a temporary exception to the, the the history of Europe, actually. Nazism is a reproduction and a translation of the same practices and forms of oppression that Europe knew very well and already put in practice in the colonial periphery to begin with. And this is, you know, broadly speaking, politically speaking, um, um, evident, but it is also quite literally materialized in the the specific forms of subjugation that are um, that are deployed by by the Nazi regime um, uh, and, and for instance um, 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 some some geographers who have worked on this especially uh, New Venice, they have focused on how the gas chambers are just a further iteration iteration of a longer history of aerial warfare and and a, 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 a longer history of the ways in which the air became weaponized and and to that I think it is important to add that the um, this history is a colonial history of warfare um, that was both intellectually but also materially translated from the colony back into the, the horrors of Nazi Germany.
0: Yeah, um, I think that, that links in with, with my final question really well, in which, you know, you mentioned about the, the horrors of um, colonial violence coming back to the metropole, to Europe, if you like, and sort of that hierarchy of imperialism. My last question would be, so when Italy is bombing Ethiopia, Italy sees aerial bombardment as the act of a advanced civilization. Yet when Nazi Germany bombs Europe, aerial bombardment is seen as a barbarian tactic. So how does this how are hierarchies of imperial dominance inscribed in the logic of civilized equals bomber, uncivilized
1: equals bombed? Yeah, that's a very good question, thank you. Well, um, to begin with, I don't. I don't believe that um, there is necessarily a predetermined connection between the exertion of aerial violence on the one hand and the attribution of categories of civilization or imperial hierarchies on the other. So, what, what I mean is. We should not automatically assume that the equation between civilised bomber and uncivilised bombed are necessarily true uh, across history. So what is important instead, I think, is to understand that these connections have existed historically, still exist, and will probably stay with us in future ways in which warfare, and broadly speaking, um, state-led violence is carried out. So for instance, uh, historically, we've seen how the experience of fascist Italy was not only um, informed by a broader European history of aerial violence, but it was also in turn shaping and motivating particular understandings of aerial warfare and um, this has obviously become clear in the world wars for instance where the barbarity of German bombing so like the bomber as barbaric paradoxically then justified the Allies aerial intervention as something that instead was civilised and and, and a noble way of reacting, Um, um, in in a similar way. For instance, uh, the example of Japan is is very telling in in this this context. When we think about Imperial Japan conducting vast operations of biological warfare on vast scales, in uh, uh, the 1930s and 1940s in its colonies, which uh, were aimed at um, spreading um, plagues and plague-inflected fees or, or bacterial compounds across their colonies as a way to impose aerial dominance, which was obviously seen with, with, with horror, by the international community now, like w- when it was found out. Well, at the same time, by the same token, the American deployment of uh, carpet bombing, but also most, most obviously, nuclear bombs, was also was almost justified as seen as a reassertion of a rightful. Um, hierarchy of global politics so this this tells us how important uh, the historical connections between racial violence and the production of destructive weathers and atmospheres is and still in our days I think the the persistent use of tear gas for instance shows how the atmosphere these these atmospheres of um, of violence, of annihilation, and of imperial and racial um, 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 dominance are still part of us in in occupied Palestine, in Black Lives Matter protests, uh, along the journey of refugees across the borders of Turkey and across the borders of of, of Greece. So the the Experience of being deprived of air is unfortunately, as also Ashil Bembe said, fundamentally crucial to the colonial enterprise. So, what is important here to understand is that aerial violence has a specific history, and that history, this history, is inextricably linked with colonial warfare. So, waging war in the air has often been foundational in structuring hierarchies of race, civilization, modernity, and these histories and, and these conflicts still have their legacies haunting us today.
0: Um, I, th- I think that's a very powerful metaphor to end on um, Italo, you know, that, de- that deprivation of air. Um, particularly in the idea of the, the, the tear gas that we see so much on TV screens around the world these days. Um, so uh, I, I'd really like to, to thank you for your interview today, um, I think that, that's really really enlightening. Um, again, I'd, I'd advise people, I'll put it up in, in the chat, um, I mean on Twitter Italo's uh, article is available freely online so I really recommend reading it um, and unless you've got any final comments Italo I just want to you know thank you very much for your time today this hour I, you know I really appreciate you giving up your time to, to speak to me um, to get on the get out there and, and, and hopefully this is a supportive place to share your ideas
1: yeah, I'm, I'm, I just want to thank you again, James. It's, it's been a really, really pleasant discussion and, uh, and I'm really thankful for, for, um, for you having me here and for our conversation. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you very much.